Yo, it's crazy because Fury ain't doing nothing either. I, I, Yo, Wilder got to land the right. I mean, I don't know. They something. Yo, his face look crazy too. Oh Stop shit! Fight, man. Yo, he just said he can't. He can't get the timing. He's still throwing, but it's just not there. Damn, bruh. What? This ain't going back to tomorrow. Fuck. The British, the British are coming. The British is coming. Yo, the British invaded. Yo, hit him with it. Off oh, jab. Here comes the setup. Here we go. Yo, why are you in the corner? There? Oh, oh, shit. The they going to stop it. Stop the fight. Oh, That's it. That's it. shit. His corner stopped the fight. I don't believe it. Fuck! Look at him. He looked like he can't even. It's over, man. Why'd you do that? Bro, you was getting mauled. Come on, Chad. Damn, bro. Bro, really telling Shelly, like, yo, it's in. Yo, Shelly wanted him to get fighting. Like, come on, Shelly. <laughs> I just had to share a bit of the the boxing voice crew and how they <laughs> how their world slowly imploded as Deontay took more and more of a beating. I guess it's a lesson not to be too partisan in things. Sometimes there are events in boxing you've just got to enjoy as a fan. No matter what side you are, what you witness is something you're not going to see probably for the rest of the decade. So make the most of it while you have it. But look... I guess we're in, the, we're in the aftermath of this, aren't we? We're, we've now managed to digest it. We've heard all the ridiculous shit on social media. We've seen the crazy YouTube videos. We've seen the Fury fans kicking off in Vegas. P.S. Thank you for being so British in America. Love it. Which is weird because the Americans don't understand the, the British hooligan spirit. The fact that we just kick off over the most innocuous of things. But I guess they've got guns over there. and We've just got fists, bottles and glasses. So... You know, different mindsets, different outcomes. Well, what I wanted to do today, and I haven't probably done this ever, is let's try and rank where we are with the heavyweights now. Based on what we've seen up until this point, from up until the point you are listening to this, where do we rank the respective heavyweights and why? I think this is important because sometimes things get lost by the wayside and, you know, we just, we start to to merge debates and discussions into each other, then we kind of lose focus about what's really important in terms of the fights that we want to see. So for me, if I just look at the list, if you take the te top 10, top 15 guys out there, you start to rank them. So I, I think we all agree now when we say Tyson Fury is number one, and there are a number of reasons why. Number one, 
in his first incarnation, he beat the seemingly unbeatable Vladimir Klitschko. A uh, heavy punching giant of a man who had a body count as long as anyone in history. He went away for two years. He ate uncastrated boar. He had some cocaine. He was, you know what I mean? He had a fair few Jaeger bombs. Probably some Jaffa cakes, but not the pineapple ones. Ugh, disgusting. But essentially, you know, he came back and then beat another six foot seven heavy punching giant with a body count. And he did both by outclassing both men. And, you know, Vlad walking to the Hall of Fame. Wilder, depending on how he comes back, might be a shout for the Hall of Fame one day. And so Fury's got those on his record. And, you know, there's not much else on there. But the fact is, in terms of top level, Tyson's done it in a way that none of his peers have. So Tyson's number one at the moment. I don't think anyone can debate that. I don't care if you think Joshua knocks him out. That's irrelevant right now. What we're doing is we're ranking people on achievement. No potential. That's why Usyk's not on this list because Usyk hasn't given us a heavyweight win that we can stand behind at the moment. So he might join that list by the end of the summer. We don't know. But right now he's not on that list. But we should also temper this fury love by, you know, being able to place him in a historical context. So someone asked me, do I think he's the best heavyweight of the last 30 years? Is he the, is he the best heavyweight since Mike Tyson? You know, someone asked me that. Number one, I don't think Mike Tyson should be the benchmark you have. But then I looked at Tyson. I went, would Tyson Fury beat Lennox Lewis? No. I think Lennox has too many tricks. Lennox is... Lennox has that same amateur pedigree. Lennox has that same high skill set that Tyson Fury has. But he has a natural athleticism and he has a natural power. I think Lennox beats him. I also think Riddick Bowe beats him. I think Riddick Bowe is everything that Tyson Fury is, but just ruthless, hard-headed and brutal with it. Heavy-handed, loved to be in the pocket, was, I mean, was every bit as good as Fury in the pocket, could do it long if he needed to, has the same amateur pedigree as well. So you're not going to outskill a man like Riddick Bowe. So I think Tyson's are great, but there are guys there who, who set the bar just a little bit higher in my opinion. Now, second is going to be contentious. No one's going to agree with me. And that's okay. I'm looking forward to the tweets abuse me. But I'm going to put Wilder at number two. And it wasn't easy. Part of me says Joshua because the names on Joshua's record, you go, yeah, mm, fair. It's a fair run for a champion. If you consider no champion has back-to-back -back killers on their, on, on their resume, no one has back-to-back -back killers as a heavyweight. The human body's not designed for that. So what Joshua has is no different to what the others have. The problem with Joshua is we still don't have what I'd call a signature win. He needs a fight against number one or number two. So he needs to fight Fury. He needs to fight Wilder. And that's why Wilder's at number two. Because Wilder's only lost to Tyson Fury. And on that form, Tyson Fury would have beaten any of the current heavyweights. I don't want to hear talk about Usyk. I don't want to hear talk about anyone. I don't hear talk about Hergovic. I don't want to hear talk about Dubois. Fury would have run over anyone on Saturday night. That's the kind of form he was in. It was surreal. It was superhuman. It was unbelievable. Read into that what you will. 
but Wilder's only lost to him. And he could hold that second place because of what he had done up until that point. Now, if Wilder never fights again, does he slide down? Potentially. But if he doesn't look spectacular in his next fight against someone we recognize, he might have to go in with someone of the caliber of, <laughs> like a like a Chisora. He might have to. He might have to get in with someone of a Charles Martin and then just blitz them away and we can say, okay, you know, he's got his confidence back. Because just because Fury was able to do what he did in that fight, I don't believe anyone else could. Wilder struggled with the fact that he was in with a bigger man. I think psychologically that started to play with him when Fury played the bigger man in that fight. The one thing you, you teach fighters is this. Whatever it is you are, exaggerate it. So if you're a tall guy, make yourself taller. If you're a small guy, make yourself smaller. If you're a power puncher, fully load up. Of, I mean, the early part of it, fully load up your shots so they feel the maximum force you can generate. Even if it's on the arm, it doesn't matter. When they feel that force and they know they can't generate that, it changes the psychology of the fight. Right? So you've got that. Now, if you're not powerful, but if you're super skillful, then you've got to use that. And you've got to exaggerate that. Make him miss spectacularly, demoralize him. Wilder still fought like a big guy against the guy that was bigger than him. Do you know what I mean? If that makes sense. He wasn't trying to outwork him. He wasn't trying to use speed. He wasn't trying to use movement or angles, which he should have been trying to do against Fury. If Fury's going to come in and bull rush you, you can't meet fire with fire in that situation. You've got to be the matador. Although to be an effective matador, sometimes you've got to go to him, you know, just to goad him. And Wilder could have done that because he's got the equalizer. So Fury, you know, if he feels a bit of that power on the jaw, he'll calm down a bit. And Wilder wasn't able to calm him down. And so, you know, that was one of the problems in the fight. But, you know, can Wilder come back from that? We'll find out. He's... No, just like Mike Tyson did against Buster Douglas. You go from believing you're indestructible, believing that you only have to touch him once, to realizing you're human and you're just like the rest of it. And actually, you're a guy that hasn't really got fundamentals to fall back on, which is a slight worry because at 34 years old, time's not on Wilder's side. So he can't have an 18-month period of introspection. He can't have two and a bit years out where he goes to Marseille and buys Jaeger bombs for the fans. He can't do that. He's literally got to get himself straight back on that horse if he wants to make a career of it. And he wants to embellish his legacy with another title run, which I think is still within him. Third is Joshua. And, and look, if you put Joshua two, Wilder three, you're not right, you're not wrong. It's, I understand it. I understand it because he's got the momentum with him while there hasn't got the momentum with him. So I'm fully on board with that. I'm just not sold in Ruiz as a, as a top-level contender because he hasn't given us anything yet after that defeat. So we can't really benchmark him just yet. And then the other guys, people know my views on the guys that Joshua's fought thus far. They haven't been bad, but they haven't been impressive. So he needs that signature win. Vladimir doesn't do it for me because that was damaged goods. He needs a signature win that will make us all a believer. It might even be like he needs to fight Jerome Miller, someone who's going to take him into deep water and make him overcome his demons. 
but I'm happy to put AJ in that top three because I think he's on merit. I think he's he's a prime example of having the perfect mindset to be a champion. He's he's the mindset most athletes should aspire to. Never really out of shape, doesn't neglect the gym, understands that this is a short career and he has to maximize every minute that he can and he does that. So I have a lot of respect for the way Joshua goes about his professional career. I absolutely love it. Choice of opponents, I don't think is his, but you know, you got to take what you can. But he's, you know, give him his due. So Joshua at number three. So I think one, two, and three are comfortably ahead of everyone else. Um, don't really want to entertain a debate around anyone else being in the top three. Like I said, Usyk might get in there, Yoka might get in there, but you've got to give me the the wins. Give me the wins that will make me take notice and I'll reconsider. Number four was tough because if you if you measure it based on having a group of men fight each other and there's one winner, who would that winner be? And you mark them as number four, you might put Ortiz in that discussion, if that makes sense, because his southpaw is awkward. But if you do it based on what these guys have achieved up until the point we're listening to this, then I think it's Dillian White. I think Dillian White's got the names on his record where you say, that's a good run for a heavyweight. It's not elite, but it's the kind of run you have when you're knocking on that door. So if Dillian were to fight any of the top three, no one would say he doesn't deserve it. That's why he's number four. I think you can question all the other guys. I don't think you can question Dillian White. And that's why he's number four. And then you've got to look at it, like on a side, just on a side note, look at what this guy's achieved, right? And if you, if you, if you break it down like this, look at where Fury was when Dillian was making his way. Look at where Wilder was when Dillian was making his way early in his career. Look at where Joshua was when Dillian was making his way early in his career. Far more illustrious. No one thought Dillian could get this far. So now is a good time to stop and just nod your head and go, absolutely. This man is the ultimate overachiever. And it doesn't look like he's finished yet. Look at where Joseph Parker was when Dillian, you know, before Dillian even did anything in his career. Look where Joseph Parker was. Look at where Dillian White was when Joseph Parker fought for that world title. Look at where Dillian was when Michael Hunter was in the Olympics. All of these things tell you Dillian was so far behind everyone else. So to now be number four globally on the list of heavyweights, that's massive overachievement. And this is all despite not being Eddie Hearn's favorite human being. Like, Hearn has Dillian White for the same reason he has Kel Brook. So no one else has them. Not much he can do with them. Doesn't really have any interest in them. Josh is not going to let Dillian get too big. It doesn't serve his purpose. It serves his purpose to keep Dillian small. So when he needs Dillian for a fight, he can get him for a relatively low price. But Dillian's too smart for that. And maybe that's what's limited his career with Matchroom. Yeah. You feel Dillian would have had a more lucrative career had he signed with Bob Arum. But you know, we make our choices. But no, Dillian handily number four. Um, no debating that one. Number five, Povetkin. You, 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 sometimes you've got to re reward what someone's achieved and you've got to reward the fact that this man is still going at 40. The two drugs offences, absolutely take those on board. 
but who else, who's really clean in this game anymore is more my question. But no, Povetkin at number five because you look at his record compared to most on the list and he's taken more risks, he's put himself out there and he's normally come out pretty successful. So, you know, Povetkin at number five, close. Like, I think the next group of people could give him trouble and hopefully we'll see these fights happen because they'll be good fun fights. So number six, I think you could go any number of different ways. You, know, you could go with Chisora, but I'm going to exclude him for now simply because I don't think he's got a signature win that I'm looking at. You know, Spilker was kind of damaged goods. But you, you kind of have this group of Andy Ruiz. You have Luis Ortiz. Shamal though Charles Martin in there? Nah, not yet. So you've got Andy Ruiz, Luis Ortiz, and who else am I going to put? I want to put Michael Hunter in there because I think Michael Hunter's had a solid run as well. And any one of those three could follow at number six. So they're, they're put, for me, they're six, seven, eight. You guys decide where you want to put them in that list. Because for me, I'm just like, you know, they're, they're much of a muchness. They're people that have, a, they need to go on a run. We need to see them against some top level guys and see what they're really capable of. But these are also the guys who are most vulnerable from the guys coming up. Your Dubois, your Joyce's, your Jokers, your Hergovich. It's this group here. Because if you beat one of these guys, you're undoubtedly world level. And then you kind of have the rest. You've got your Pulevs, your Joseph Parkers, your Derek Chisoras. We'll put Charles Martin in that mix as well. Adam Kovnacki, Kovnacki, whatever they want to call him, into that group there. And that group merges with what I call the next wave of people. So your guys like Dubois, Joyce, Yoker, and I still put Yoker in there because he looks impressive, but he hasn't given us the win we need yet. You know, some people might put stock on the Dave Allen win, which is fair enough. But we're looking for those signature wins now. You know, Hergovich has got little, you know, it's a benchmark win. Yoker's got uh, Dave Allen, benchmark win. Dubois got Gorman, so that's a benchmark win. These are all guys I put in the same ballpark. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens when the new wave meets this kind of class of fighter. You know, you that, that those guys who some have fought for world titles have been in and around that mix, but we know they're not really world level. I think that's your group of heavyweights at the moment. Though that the, the bottom two tiers should all be fighting each other regularly. We should be watching those fights because stylistically they'd be brilliant. Throw a guy like Takam in there to to kick the chessboard up in the air. You know, and you can get all of these guys in there just mixing it up, uh, you know, on the, from the younger guys, F.A. Jagba, put all these guys up and let's see what they've got. But, but I think that's the heavyweight picture. Definitely Fury at the top of the mountain, Wilder and Joshua battling it out for who's next. In fact, why don't those two fight each other next? Winner gets Fury. I think I'm more intrigued with the Joshua-Wilder fight because we've been so invested in that for a long time. Let's just get that out the way, and then the winner fights Fury. And then at least we've, we've resolved it once and for all. There'll be no outstanding questions, and you can have any number of rematches between those guys to make money. So let me just swerve for a second. And I want to talk about Jay Diaz, because he's quite rightly coming in for a hard time. And normally I'm the first one to stand up for coaches and trainers and so forth. But I think Jay Diaz has been an utter disgrace. And here's why. 
there's a lot of stuff in boxing that's bollocks. There's a lot of stuff that's counterproductive and we kind of all know what it is. Dragging out fights for longer than they need to be. This myth that you can't show sparring footage, that what goes on in the gym is sacred. and all, these, this, It's all bullshit, right? Because once you put cameras in there or once you see it up close for yourself, you'll realise actually it's just boring as shit. That's all it is. They build it up into this mystique. That's not true, right? But that's by the by. But what Jay Diaz did is he violated the first rule of boxing. When you're not a real MF, when you're not a real person, like, when you're not real in the sport, when you're not true to this, and that doesn't necessarily mean, as I've said before, you need to have had 3,000 amateur bouts and you need to have done the ABAs 50-odd times. You don't need that. You don't need the scars and the broken nose and all that bullshit. That's nice to have, but it's not necessary. I repeat, it is not necessary. What is necessary is a respect for the sport. And it's to understand that when a man stood next to you who's been there before, has seen it, has done it, has tasted success, has tasted defeat, has been in those sorts of positions that Deontay Wilder was in. Let's be absolutely clear. Mark Breland understood. Be clear. Mark Breland, and he might have lost three or four times in his career, but every time he lost, he got stopped. He knows. And when you look in that fight, what you can see Breland doing is he's assessing Wilder. I don't know what Jay Diaz was doing. I don't know what he was saying, but what he was saying didn't seem to be congruent with what was happening in the fight. Now, here, here's another tip. You can't be in the corner in the one minute between rounds telling fighters what combinations to throw. Right? If, if he hasn't done it by round seven, it's just not in him that day. So all you're doing in the corner is you're managing the process. You're, it's, it's almost like pinball. Right? The box is the ball. And what you're trying to do is just stop the number of random things they're bouncing into. You're trying to keep the tram lines as tight as possible and say, I need you to box in the way we've been working on in camp. And from round one or even before round one to round 11, the end of round, from before round one to the end of round 11, you're just managing that process. You're keeping on the tram lines. You're making sure what you want in your fighter's head is in there. You can't, there's not much you can do. You're really tapping into emotions. You're tapping into spirit, character. That's what you're doing. You're cajoling, you're motivating, you're, you're praising. You're doing all these things you need for this guy to give more of himself every round. That's all you're doing. There's nothing, I can't, between round five and round six, what I can't say to him is, I need you to double jab, slip, throw the right hand, roll under, right hand, left uppercut, left hook, roll under. I can't do that. He can't process it. Right? Because he's really going to do what's in there. What I can do is give him the moral, spiritual, and psychological conditioning that will color how he does his work. That's the art of good training. Angelo Dundee, Customata, all these guys were fantastic at that. Just squeezing 10% out of you every round. Give me a little bit more. Give me a little bit more. Be a little bit smarter in there. So what the hell Jay Diaz was doing, I have no idea. He didn't seem to be reading the fight. And, okay, fair enough, Jay Diaz used to be a 
a murder reporter. I think that was it. He used to report on murders in, in Alabama. That was his life. By the grace of God, his brother opens up a gym. And into that gym walks in a young man with freakish power. That's the only thing that qualifies Jay Diaz to be training Deontay Wilder. He was just there when Deontay walked in the door. What qualifies Mark Breland? An Olympic gold medal. World welterweight title. That being one of the best welterweights of his generation. Being one of the tallest, lankiest guys with that, that Wilder-esque build and Everything about Mark Breland lines up with Wilder. So when Breland sees Wilder in distress and says, I might have to throw the towel in, I think I'm going to throw the towel in if this carries on. What Mark Breland is saying is, you failed at your job, Jay Diaz. I've been looking at you since round five to throw this towel in. And you haven't. I'm taking control of the situation. Because I don't want a dead body on my hands. And after all of that. And he's the one who gets the hard time. For Jay Diaz to sit there in a post-fight press conference and say. I didn't agree with the stoppage. I didn't agree with throwing the towel in. I wanted him to carry on. He's a puncher. This is what gets fighters killed. So when you hear guys like Danny Connor, when you hear guys like Tyler Goodger, when you hear guys like Paul Smith say, I trust someone in the corner who's been there and done it before. What they're saying to you is, I can't put my life in the hands of someone that doesn't understand what's going on in there. I need someone who knows when I'm in trouble. And I need someone who's got the courage to pull me out of there when I'm in trouble. JD has failed at that. If Deontay Wilder has any courage and any desire to be taken seriously, he will get rid of Jay Diaz as a trainer. Maybe not as a manager or as a friend, but he'll get rid of Jay Diaz as a trainer. Because that could have ended with a fatality. I don't think Fury was going to stop because Fury was in seek and destroy mode. Wilder was in, you're going to have to kill me to stop me mode. And that's always dangerous for a fighter. And at that point there, you need your corner to go, this is too much. The other point, which we've, I think I've touched on before, is he didn't go for the doctor. As soon as that ear was gone, as soon as Wilder came back and said, listen, my ear's gone. That's when you get the doctor in. You say, listen, I need you to come and have a look here. There's fluid coming out of his ear. I need to check this isn't brain fluid. What does that do? That either gets you the fight stopped before the end of round four. And then it's a no contest. Or it gets you doctor time, which buys Wilder two or three minutes to get his fucking shit together. But what you are doing is you're buying an advantage for your fight, and that's what an experienced corner does. People like Ray Arcel, Gil Clancy, even Freddie Roach, Roberto Garcia, all of these guys, even I think Jorge Rubio, they'd all know Jimmy Tibbs would do this. They'd all know that doctor time will buy you at least a minute and a half to just pull yourself together, get a little bit of extra recovery, go again. And if that doesn't work, just pull him out. Dominic Ingle did it with Kell Brook. As soon as he saw the distress, pulled him out. That's called being a good trainer. Fans don't like it and I understand that. But look at the position Wilder was in. He had the rematch clause. On a no contest, you come back, you do a third fight. 
You don't sustain that damage, potentially a broken jaw, your eardrum's gone. You might never be the same man again because Jay Diaz thought he knew what he was doing. Jay Diaz, the fan of Deontay Wilder, not the trainer, the fan of Deontay Wilder, couldn't be the parent in that situation. Try to be the buddy. And when Mark Breland took control of the situation and said, I'm going to be the adult here, he criticizes him. I think JD has been an absolute disgrace. And I'd say that to his face. I think that's a disgraceful behavior because you're dealing with someone's life. But it'll be interesting to see how Wilder approaches this. Because it's hard. What do you do with as Wilder? You know, most people listening to this will say, well, he needs better defense. I'll let you in on a little secret. You don't learn defense as an adult. It's such a nuanced and intricate part of boxing. The easy part is actually just throwing heavy leather because we're intuitively wired to do that. The ability to read, understand, interpret, and manage incoming fire takes years. Years and years of making mistakes repeatedly over and over again in sparring. You might get put over. Fury's been put over a few times. But you learn it. You learn what your body can do, what your body can't do. And you build up your own individualized defense approach. Wilder hasn't got time for that. So if Wilder is going to change trainers, which might help, don't know. But if you are, you're looking for someone who's attack-minded, number one. Number two is like Fury did. Someone who's used to dealing with big men successfully. Now... What do you then do? Do you go with someone who's got a more European upright style? Maybe. I don't think you can have Wilder boxing in the kind of loose, slick way. He's just too ungainly for that. You might just have to have him you know, doing that. Or, or sometimes maybe just let him go. One of the things that disappointed me in this whole fight was Deontay was so conventional. He made it easy for Tyson Fury. There wasn't any of... The uh, unpredictability. We weren't seeing crazy shots from crazy angles. We were seeing wild shots and wild swings. But it all felt a bit conventional. And that made it easy for Fury. And I don't know if under the pressure, people were getting to him saying, you've got to learn how to box against Tyson Fury. I genuinely think the best thing against a guy like Fury is to be unpredictable yourself. Because then he can't read you. The more predictable and conventional you are, the easier you are to read. And that's why it's an easy fight. The Joshua fight's an easy fight for Fury because Joshua's so textbook, Fury would just see it coming six months in advance. Easy work for him. So I don't know who you go for as a trainer. I legitimately don't. Do you go for one of those guys like Yvonne Michel, someone who's pretty basic? You know, he, I don't know what you do. I really don't. But he has to make changes. And those changes have to be about Increasing the work rate, understanding who you are as a fighter, more importantly, understanding where, when, and how you detonate that right hand. You know, that's really what it's about. How many situations can you create, Deontay Wilder, to unleash that right hand successfully? That's the challenge he faces now. Something I wanted to touch on, and it's a follow-up from a previous podcast. If you've heard, if you've heard it, it's probably episode number, I don't know, fifty-six, and it's just basically about Andre Sterling versus Dan Aziz. 
But actually, the issue's wider than that. It's, it's about March 28th. So for all you boxing fans, March 28th, if you're not a Londoner, and more importantly, if you're not a South Londoner, March 28th is an absolute boon for you. Get three or four TV screens up and you'll be in heaven, right? At the O2, you've got a matchroom show headlined by David Avanessian versus Josh Kelly for the European welterweight title. Big fight. The first fight should have happened. Josh Kelly mysteriously got ill, even though as of half past 12 the night before, he was fine and everyone was ready for the fight. Uh, to the point where Adam Booth went and ran a training session at Dave Caldwell's gym on a Saturday morning. So I, I have no idea when they were worried. They were su clearly supremely confident. If, if the statement then says, look, he was ill overnight, I don't think your head trainer goes off and does a training course and then comes back and postpones the fight. But that's neither here nor there. And then you've got Luther Clay versus Chris Congo. It's a good fight, but this is, Chris Congo becomes one of the problems. Okay, further down the card, you've got Joshua Boatsy versus to be announced. And then you've got young Ellie Scottney, who we've talked about on this podcast before making her debut. This is one card. There you have three people, in my eyes, who essentially fish in the same waters. Joshua Boatsy, South Northern Victory, Southeast London's finest light heavyweight. And then you've got Ellie Scottney, Catford, boxed out of the Lynn, Southeast London's finest female, I think, in my opinion. I don't think anyone argues with that. And then you've got, I've got to remember what other name I mentioned as well, Chris Conger. Uh, I never know if he was Fisher or Lynn. I think Chris Conger was the Lynn, and he's another one of Southeast London's finest. These three people have to sell tickets for a fight on the same night. They have the same friends. The overlap between these guys is significant in London because that's really where you're selling tickets. Okay, Ellie might sell some to some of her GB mates. Chris might sell some to people outside of his circle because he's got a profile. Joshua Bartz, you same again, right? But you're having these three people. Ellie's got to do this on her debut. You know? It's not like there's a massive main event. This isn't a Dillian White show where the tickets kind of sell themselves and boxers merely do it as a courtesy. And so you get your good numbers. You know, you, we, we go back to the days of Richie Riakpour selling tickets to, I think it's Ike Latif, and doing 30,000 in tickets. You know, I'd probably do that every fight. So look, we've got those. There you go. This, the South London problem extends to three people right now. But park that for a second. Another fight, and I think this is your call, will be headlined by Dan Aziz versus Andre Sterling for the English light heavyweight title. Dan Aziz, Lewisham's finest. Andre Sterling, Lewisham's finest. These guys know each other. They, same circles, man. Like Now that's five people all selling tickets on the same night to the same people. Yeah, we all buy tickets off these guys. Okay, so now, so now you're looking at this, going, "Wow, this is this is terrible." Like, if you're a London boxing fan, you're like, "I either go to your call or I go to the O2." Yeah, this is an unpleasant position to be in, and then it's further complicated by events at the Sky Dome in Coventry the same night, where Isaac Chamberlain comes back. 
against an opponent to be announced. <laughs> Not only that, but Craig Richards, South London's finest, Southeast London's finest, I should say, is fighting Shikan Pitters for the British title. So Craig's got to take his people with him. So I think I've mentioned, for just from South London, let's just talk about South London, that's what, six or seven people all trying to sell tickets on the same night to exactly the same people. And this doesn't affect you. If you're listening to this from Manchester, Barnsley, Doncaster, uh, South Shields, the border regions, Dunfermline, uh, Mountain View, shouts out to Mountain View, uh, Ellesmere Port, whoever's in Ellesmere Port, much love for that. You know, Port Talbot, Brecon, shouts out to all the guys just listening. If you're from those areas, it's a hell of a night for you. Yeah. Get your screens up, get your three litre box of Western's Organic or Strongbow Dark Fruits, whichever one chooses, you know, partial to a, a three litre box of Western's Organic. I mean, that'll definitely do you for a night of boxing. But get that, sit down, get your screens up, watch it. You're in for a hell of a night. But this is what I mean, promoters, egos, and selfishness. Hearn doesn't need this show. He's got the Manchester show three weeks before that, where he seems to focus his energies. Then he's got the Newcastle show the week after. This show, it's a throwaway. Why isn't Josh Kelly headlining the Newcastle show? Number one. Number two, Hearn, Hearn has Craig Richards as his fighter. He could have had that fight on his show. He's worked with Dan Aziz. He's worked with Andre Sterling. He could have had that fight on his show. I don't think MTK would have been averse to that. And here was the problem. These guys don't coordinate. They don't work together. And who suffers? In this instance, the fans win. The fighters suffer. Like, you've diluted their ticket pool. Like, how are these guys going to shift tickets? I really hope they do. And if, you know, as fans get behind them, but they're hamstrung. And... It's a legacy of always mining London for boxing talent. I know, I know, I know. But there has to be some common sense applied here where you say, we can't have this because Eddie, I don't want to say he deliberately lost the purse bid, but it was the purse bid he could have won and he's got the money for it. And he knew what date that fight had to happen. So why would you put a show then? Like, are you really trying to sink Craig Richards? Do you dislike Craig that much that you have no sympathy for him? Or was he just trying to get back at Isaac with a, by putting on a substandard card and just kind of throwing people on there? Because Ellie Scottney should be making her debut on a Dillian card, in my opinion. That's just my view. It would make more sense. It's a more congruent fit, and it would be better for her profile. This is the card that does nothing. Joshua Bartzi shouldn't be on this card. Why is he on this card? You know, Why? Is it because AJ is just not fighting in the UK anymore? Is that why? But I don't know. Like Josh, Josh deserves to be treated better. Ellie deserves to be treated better. Andre and Dan definitely deserve to be treated better. If I was advising either of those two guys, I'd have an injury now. That's me. I'd have an injury. My hand would go. And the reason my hand would go is very simple. Why, why am I trying to have the biggest fight of my career? overshadowed by events in Coventry and events at the O2. It, this is, I find it, it's just disrespectful. I would. I'd be injured. I'd be injured and I'd have the fight maybe four weeks later. 
Because there's nothing on that card that can't be put off for a month. And that's the challenge we have in boxing, in my opinion. It's just that no one seems to be trying to help each other out. And we as fans are suffering for it. I've just realized I've gone horribly over my time limit. So let me duck out. But if you're walking your dog, man, you got a few, get a few extra steps in. I mean, I gave you a few extra minutes for that. And then the last thing I want to say is massive congratulations to Umar Sadiq on his win on Saturday. He, his career, much like Dan Aziz, is a career that if you've followed me on my podcast journey, you've seen the careers just rise, grow. You've seen all the obstacles, the challenges and so forth. I'm actually thinking of doing a podcast with Dan and Umar. They just need to tell me when they're available and we'll make it happen. But Uma boxed brilliantly. Like we like we'd spoken about the fight in the run up to it, and like his ideas were spot on for what to do, and he executed against that. Sign of a good team. Sign of a fantastic team. When everything you say you're going to do, you end up doing. Perfect. That's how you do boxing. Take care, guys, and I'll speak to you all soon.